Would you grab your Bibles and turn to John 10? We'll finish up John 10 today and we'll begin the narrative on Lazarus next week. Before we read this, let me take something that was in the sermon. I'll put it now. These are the very last words in regard to public declaration, real clear testimony that Jesus gives the religious leaders. He's not going to talk to them again until he stands before them at the trial. And if you'll remember, he doesn't say anything. He, um, he says, uh, and I am, and high priest freaks out and rips his clothes. But this is it. So this is, the last, this is the last tender moment of him reaching out to them, giving them a, a chance to really hear again clearly who he is. And so, so these, are, these are pretty important words, okay? These are the men that he's saying these to who should have been ready for his coming. These were the religious leaders who knew the scripture and had it memorized, and they missed it totally. And so, so as that sets our stage today, these are really important words because they are kind of basically the last will and testament in a sense of Jesus speaking to them uh, before his death. So let's read this. We're gonna, we talked about 30 last week, but we're going to put it together this week because it's important to do so. And we'll read through the end of the chapter. So I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And so Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. He's quoting Psalm 82, verse 6. And if he called them little g gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. And again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Let's pray, and then we'll get started. Lord, your word is eternal, um, it is relevant, it is accurate for every need in our lives. And so, Spirit, be our guide through this text today, and may you be deeply honored in everything that we think about and contemplate about as we look at this text. In your name we pray, amen. There have been times in my life where I've read a passage in the Bible, and you may have done this as well, and I've seen those in a particular setting, a particular place, and looked at the decisions that they made, and I um, honestly, arrogantly have said, well, if I'd have lived back then, if I'd have seen that, boy, I, I'd have made a completely different decision, and honestly, we don't really know, and so um, we don't know about that, but as we come to the conclusion of John chapter 10 today, we will... 
we will see once again that Jesus gives them every opportunity to clearly see what he has been communicating about who he is. In the first century, I looked this week, during the three years, a little over three years that Jesus did his ministry, the four Gospels tell us some interesting insights without glaringly saying something. And what they communicate to us is this, is that all through Israel, in the south and in the north, Jesus visited the large cities, the really big ones. Matthew 9, 35 tells us that Jesus went through all the towns and villages. And so the big cities he was in, he taught in those, some of those he healed in. Uh, in the towns and villages, Matthew nine thirty five tells us that he healed diseases, cast out demons, and he did a tremendous amount of work. In Jerusalem, Jesus has done miracles. Um, on the hillside, he did a miracle when he multiplied the fish and the bread. And my point in this is to say this. All over Israel, by the time we get to this text, in December, about three to four months before Jesus is crucified, you could go, you could almost not go anywhere in the nation that you couldn't find someone who had heard Jesus teach or had, or had had Jesus touch their body and heal them or find someone who was present when Jesus did a miracle. This revelation of who he is just powerfully impacted the entire nation. We know in John chapter 4, he's in Samaria in this region called Sychar. There's a great revival that happens there through the changing of this woman called, uh, the, we call her the Samaritan woman. So she goes back to her town and they come. And so all over the nation, it has been clear that Jesus has this powerful authority in teaching and in healing and in casting out demons. So we are not short of, as we read the text, evidence in a sense or, or eyewitness account of not just the apostles, but of people like you and I living in the nation who saw what Christ did. And so again, today, Jesus is going to one last time in front of the religious leaders clearly define for them who he is. One last testimonial from him to them. So this is also really the last big confrontation that will take place. Um, it's pretty staggering. We'll look at that here in just a moment. Um, in that They are ready to kill him right in the temple. Um, they're done with him in a big way and they're ready to stone him to death. So let's begin to walk through the text and let me just touch on the first point for a moment here, and that's the aim to kill and remove God. Look at 31. So the Jews, this is in John's gospel, he's often referring to the religious leaders when he uses this phrase, the Jews. So the Jews picked up stones again, notice the word again, this is not the first time, to stone him. Now Leviticus chapter 24, 13 through 16 gives us and defines for us uh, what would happen to a blasphemer in the Old Testament law in regard to that they would be stoned to death. And so they are going to fulfill what they know and understand from the Scripture. This is not the first time they have wanted to stone him. It's not the first time that it's been deep in their heart that they've wanted to kill Jesus. John five eighteen says this, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, 
Because not only was Jesus breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And then in John chapter 8, he has this conversation with them that your father is the devil, yet you claim Abraham and the father, and, but you actually have the father of lies. And that's uh, where he speaks about before Abraham was, I am, and they don't like that at all. And so John eight fifty nine says, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So this is the second time inside the temple they have picked up stones and want to kill Jesus. Just on a side note, we've talked about this. This indicates the hypocrisy and the level of hard-heartedness that dominated that time. Now look around our room this morning. If you get caught in sin today at church, we don't have anything that we're going to do to you, throw at you. But inside the temple, 2,000 years ago, they had stones stored away somewhere, readily accessible to pick up and use. Now think about this. Inside the temple, a place of holiness and a place of prayer, the religious leaders had allowed stones to be brought in to be quickly grabbed to deal with a sinner in a way of death. Now, yes, the Old Testament law taught them what they ought to do, but did you need to do that in the, the temple? Is that where that needed to take place? And here's what happens. When you check out from the authenticity of the Scripture and you walk in the obedience of your own will and not the obedience of the Scripture, you begin to allow things inside the worship center or the worship place or in the church that should not be. And you can't see the connection and the danger that is there. And so they've got stones in their hands, ready to get rid of Jesus, ready to throw them, ready to kill them. Well, guess what? Here we are, May the 2nd, 2021 and is anything different our culture today and much of the world wants to shut up christianity any kind of testimony about christ and so and even his people what we stand for and what we want to proclaim there's nothing new under the sun from the beginning people have mocked god and his people and it will continue to take place and jesus becomes this great divider he is still this great divider worldwide. And Jesus himself even told us that he would become this. Listen to these words in Matthew 10, 34 and 35. Listen to what Jesus says. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of their own Household. He becomes this great divide in how people see him and what they want done to him and his followers. And so here they are. They have got stones. They've got them up and they're ready. Jesus is standing before them. But there's something unique in this section that's not in other places. If you remember when he went to Nazareth and he opened the scroll and it was in Isaiah 53, he read it. And then Jesus said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your presence, and they want to take him and throw him off a cliff, and he slips through them. Right here in this section, he doesn't slip through them. And what I want you to notice is this, is he stands his ground. So they've got stones, 
And then Jesus is going to engage them in a conversation. A little bit later, what we read, they will try to arrest him, but they are ready to throw rocks. But Jesus stands there on the precipice of this appearing dangerous moment that they are ready to throw and to begin to hit his body with the rocks. But Jesus asks them, hey, what's motivated you in this moment with all the things that I've done that's good? Why do you want to kill me? They've seen his fury at the beginning of his ministry when he came into the temple and overturned the tables. They will see it again in a couple of months when he comes back into the city and he will overturn the money changers in the temple once again. But as they look at him today, they've got the rocks. Jesus doesn't slip through. He stands there. And I want to point out something that's really important for us. I think sometimes we have done a poor job of communicating Jesus. This is a man who worked, cut down trees. This is a man who carried beams. This is a man who made big tables and built things. This is, um, this is not a body. I'm not saying Jesus is a bodybuilder like me. I'm not indicating <laughs> and communicating that at all. But I am communicating this, that he was a man who worked with his hands. He was strong. And as he stands in the temple on that day, as they've got rocks in their hands, He's not backing away. This is a man's man. This is the God-man. And he's standing in the temple in the fury of their anger as they've got rocks. And he's not going to back away. He is going to engage them one last time in a conversation to present to them what they have been missing. That he is in the Father and the Father is in him and that he has come to offer salvation. By the way, For the last 2,000 years, people have tried to kill the testimony of Jesus. And guess what we're doing in this room this morning? We are proclaiming the testimony of Jesus. All over the world, yesterday and today, what are people doing? In every nation, among every tribe that has believers, they have gathered together to do what? To proclaim that Jesus is alive. He died physically. God doesn't die, by the way. You know that, right? He died physically for a couple of days and then he rose again on the third day so all this attempt of the culture all this attempt here is fruitless because God is living he is the living God so now Jesus as they've got the rocks in their hand is going to engage in a testimony one last testimony to them and I want to look at what he speaks about he speaks about a number of things here so look with me now in verse 32 So again, don't lose sight of, they've got rocks in the hands, and Jesus is going to affirm that his works, what he has been doing, affirm that he is God. So look at 32. So Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them do you have an issue with that you are going to stone me? Let me define for you what this word good works means in the Greek. This word in our we translate it to English means excellent, something that's noble, something that's beautiful. It describes something that when it was done, it brought joy and peace and freedom and happiness and joy and praise and, and worship. And so Jesus says, I've gone, basically I've gone everywhere doing this, these good works, these noble works in the lives of people. Which one of those do you have an issue with that I have done that you want to stone me today? And honestly, again, as I said in the beginning, you could go all over the nation of Israel and you could find people who could lie about Jesus, but you couldn't honestly find someone who could say, 
Jesus did harm. Jesus is not kind. Jesus is not loving. And Jesus wasn't a truth speaker. And so, so you could find people who responded wrongly, but you couldn't find anybody to say anything about Jesus. Now think about this for a moment on these things. Just follow along with me of what, was hap- what had happened all over Israel. Those that had been ravaged by the demonic were now free. Those who were born blind lived in wonder of seeing colors of trees and rivers and the sky and sunsets and sunrises. Those without the magnificence of hearing now smiled every time they heard birds singing, even in the simplicity of the shutting of the door or a fire crackling. It must have been wonder to their ears to hear that. Those who couldn't walk all of a sudden knew the joy of skipping and jumping, stepping up on a chair, swimming, or walking with your family alongside the river. Can you imagine the joy of those people? And that was all over the, all over the nation. There were people like that. Those who had internal organ issues and other bodily issues on the inside had been touched by Jesus. Their physical hearts had been healed. Their issues of digestion had been healed. Brain, kidneys, they all functioned right. Those who went to bed at nighttime with terminal conditions, only to wake up the next morning under the stress of, I've still got this condition, they were free from that stress, waking up in the morning, that that man Jesus has healed me and I am free. Lepers whose fingers and toes, and particularly just think of their hands, their fingers had just been grown over by that, had fingers again, and a husband could hold hands with his wife again, and they could walk hand in hand together. It is amazing to contemplate the goodness that Jesus brought in three years to that place. And every time you and I see a miracle in the Gospels, we should stop and be reminded that those works point to the reality that these are the Father's works. And because Jesus did the Father's works, Jesus is God just as the Father is God. So one last testimony to them. First thing that Jesus tells them is this, is that my works affirm that I am God. The Father's entrusted me to do these things, and so I have done them. And so he asks them, which one of these do you want to kill me for? And they're going to answer him in a moment. We'll talk about that. But Jesus has done some amazing things. Go to verse 25 of John 10. We looked at it last week. His work should have brought about belief, but look at John 10, 25. So Jesus answered them. This is when they came and said, just tell us plainly. Tell us. Quit holding out. Tell and he said, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So Jesus begins to give them this last testimony. And the first thing he says, my works affirm that I am God. The second thing that he affirms to them is in verse 33. Look at that with me, please. So the Jews answered him, Well, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, have made yourself to be God. So they have an answer to Jesus' question, Which thing are you going to stone me for? Which work that I have done? But that's not their biggest issue, they say. Their biggest issue is is that Jesus is claiming that He is 
God, and that's being a man, they have an issue with that. As they look at Jesus, again, they really can't fight against the testimony of all the good that He has done, but they can't fully see who He is. They just see a man who's deranged, and they said this to Him. He is insane a couple of times. They see Jesus as a man calling Himself to be God, but the truth is, is that Jesus has been telling them over and over that He is, listen to this, praise, this is so awesome, that He is God who became a man. Our God became a man and lived this life. And He gets this life. He understands this life. And by doing so, He explained and revealed to you and I the glory of the Father. Now, they definitely understood what Jesus had been saying or they would not gather rocks. They understand that Jesus is saying exactly what he's saying. He is making himself out to be God. And this goes all the way back. I read it a while ago. Let me just read it again to John chapter 5. John five eighteen. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is when it began. We don't like this guy. We don't like what he's doing, when he's doing it. And so they want to get rid of it and so just as he did in john chapter 5 he and y'all remember my boxes if you're here the boxes are in that closet i need to bring them out again but all those boxes all those testimonies in john chapter 5 of who he said he was he's going to do that again here so they're questioning him wanting to stone him and he's going to give another clear testimony in regard to who he is but again notice here that jesus does not live in fear as they hold the stones he's not living in fear of their perspective and opinion of him and so here's jesus speaking and making it clear that i am god i am i and the father the father's in me and i am in the father we are one and so in his mind there was no question about that but they had lots of questions about what jesus jesus was saying in regard to this by the way notice not one stone has been thrown yet not one. They've got them, and they're angry. But as he engages in conversation, something, I think, begins to happen. And we'll talk about that here um, in a minute. But he wasn't going to be stoned to death in the temple on that day. He would lay his life down on the altar of the cross. But Jesus knew where his life rested. And it was not in man's perspective. It was not in rocks. It was in his father. He would... He would rest his life in the Father's hands. And when the time came, he would lay his life down to honor the Father and bring redemption and the hope of redemption to the life of people. So the first testimony Jesus gives them, look at my works, they affirm that I am God. Second testimony, Jesus says my nature affirms that I am God. Um, he, is, he is calling himself God. They recognize what he is calling himself and he's calling himself that because that is who he is. Thirdly, Jesus' words affirm that he is God. There are two, three verses or several verses. Look at verse 30 just for a moment. So Jesus affirms with his words, his oneness with the Father. Verse 30, he said, I and the Father are one. So these words from Jesus are ones in this instance where I think set them off and they were like, get the rocks out, wheel it out here, wherever it is. Go to the storage closet, bring them out, whatever it is. They, they get them. This is the thing that sets them off. When he says, I and the Father are one, they're like, wait a minute. And so, they, so this, one, this word one in the Greek 
is in the neuter tense, and it indicates that Jesus and His Father are not one person, but they are one in essence. So when we talk about the Trinity, we're talking about three persons, one nature, one essence. All three are completely, equally God. And yet, there are three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. John started this gospel with these sacred words. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus could not be with God if He were the same person as the Father, yet He was God, the same essence. John 1.1 affirming that. John, this, in this gospel, the writer here, frequently writes that Jesus repeated this over and over before the people about who He was which points to a distinction of the persons. The Father and the Son are equally God, and yet the Father is distinct, the Son is distinct, and the Spirit is distinct. In addition, when Jesus prayed, who did He pray to? He prayed to the Father, indicating He's praying to another person of the Trinity. If it's pointless, if He and the Father were the same person, that He would be referring to himself and saying the Father, then he would be a little bit schizophrenic, we might be able to say, but that's not the case. He is saying clearly, I and the Father are one. So he makes this before them. You need to know this, men who know the Scripture. I and the Father, we are one. And then Jesus now uses the Scripture to affirm a very unique text of Scripture to affirm that He is God. Now, I have read in my lifetime, I, can't, I don't know, never kept a record, Psalm chapter 82, I don't know how many times, many, many times in my lifetime. And I read this verse, never thought much about it until I wrote this sermon because Jesus connects His life to Psalm chapter 82, verse 6. So here's, look what He says, look at verse, verse 34, John chapter 10. So here's how Jesus answered them. Is it not written in your law? And he quotes here, Psalm 82, 6, not even the whole verse. I said, you are, look at it, little g, gods. So who's he referring to? We'll talk about that in a second. Look at 35. So if he, speaking of God, if God called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated, now here Jesus speaking of himself, whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, that you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. Here's what Psalm 82, 6 says. I said, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Now it's written in little g, Psalm 82, 6. So what does this mean? We're not gods, right? No, we're not gods. So what, what is Psalm 82 referring to? Here's what it's referring to. The religious leaders were to be judges and leaders under God's authority for the people. So in a sense, they were to serve and minister justice and counsel and wisdom as if they were doing so in God's name and for God speaking on God's behalf and what God had entrusted to them. What was the problem with most of the Old Testament leaders? They were corrupt. They were immoral, like... like um, the religious leaders here. So he, look, watch what Jesus' argument is here. He says this, if, if the Father refers to the, the leaders as 
gods, little g gods, not God. He's not affirming divinity in them. But if he, if he refers to them in the role that they were entrusted by God to be leaders before the people, if God can call them gods in this sense of extension of, of his ministry, if God can do that, why can't I, whom the Father has consecrated, set apart, sent here to the earth, to reveal the Father and to proclaim and live salvation. Why can't I, if the Father has set me apart, why can't I say I am the Son of God? So he uses the Scripture to say to them, the Father said this about these corrupt religious leaders, but I am the Son of God. I am the same essence. I and the Father are one. And so why do you have... A, if, if that's said in Psalm 82.6 in the sacred Scripture and it cannot be broken, why can I not say to you that I have come from the Father, sent on mission? Why can, I not, why can I not proclaim to you that I am the Son of God? So here two times, Jesus thirdly affirms the words that He speaks indicate that He is God. They affirm His oneness with the Father. And then Jesus uses Scripture to affirm that He is truly the Son of God. He is making the argument here from the lesser to the greater. And here's what He's saying. If men who serve under God can be referred to as little g-gods because of their position under God to make godly judgments, Jesus is saying, then why can't I, who have been sent by my Father to redeem humanity, say that I am the Son of God. And I tell you, I've got, I'm going to reach under here and I'm going to end it. I'm going to show you this, just give an indication. We'll come back to it in a minute. But this is an indication. I want to use this as an illustration of Scripture. This over here, Genesis 1 1. This last one, Revelation 22, whatever that last verse is. I, it slips my mind, whatever the last verse is. You cannot, Jesus says there, you cannot break if the word cannot be broken. And every testimony, every sentence, every word is in unison about the glory of Christ. Then we must trust and believe what Christ has said to us in every kind of way about who he is. So he uses now this third affirmation to the religious leaders that the scripture affirms who he is. Let's look at the fourth one. The Father affirms that Jesus is God. Look at 37 through 39. If I am doing the works of my Father, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe in the works. Look at the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And again, they sought to arrest him but he escaped from their hands. Let's talk about 37, verse 37, just for a moment. In a sense, here's what Jesus says. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then I'm in agreement with you. Don't believe in me. But if I am doing them, then you better stop and take a look and, 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 and really contemplate that I'm doing the works of the Father. So he is also saying to them, if what I'm doing does have anything to do with the Father, 
then don't believe me. But if what I'm doing has everything to do with the Father, then you better know that He has sent me. And you better give deep consideration to who I am because He has sent me here to the earth. And so 37, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. So Jesus states here, I know you've got a problem with me and the things that I'm saying and affirming that I am one with the Father and that I am the Son of God. But let me ask you this. Let me ask you to do this, men. But if indeed I am doing His works, even though you've got real issues with me, then take a really good look at what I have been doing before you. And you need to believe that they are the works of the Father. That I'm not doing this in Satan's name. I'm not doing this in any other reason except for the glory of the Father. And every time Jesus did a work that the Father wanted him to do, that work pointed back to Jesus and who he is. So that's why, again, when we read all of these things in the Gospels, we should raise our hands and go, wow, I'm so glad that I've been given the clearest testimony to believe that Jesus is the Son of God in the Scripture. So Jesus says, listen, the evidence of my work greatly matters. It deeply matters for you. You've got to consider the things that I do. And again, this is the last face-to-face reminder that He has given to them. One last plea to them because the next time that he stands before them you know what he will be like he will be like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent so he opened not his mouth he will not talk to them again this is it this is the last time he's going to talk to them but this time he's going to open his mouth because he's lovingly calling them to consider what is true in their midst what they can see what he has said So again, the tenderness and patience of Jesus has been great with these men. They should have been ready for Him to come. Of all the people of Israel who should have been ready, it should have been the religious leaders who knew the Old Testament. And they don't embrace Him. He won't make any more statements after today to them other than one when He indicates to the high priest that He is God. But on this day, He opens His mouth again. And aren't you glad that he is that way, so incredibly patient with us and with the world. I've got people that I love that I'm longing for Jesus to move who live in a way that don't honor him. And I'm, I'm so glad that I think he's always at work. He's always at work. And I'm praying and pleading with him to move. So notice next what he says. He says that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and that I am in the Father. So he pleads with them one more time to really look. And if you'll look and see the things that these are the Father's works, I have been doing them. They point that I am God and I am the Son of God. And so I'm asking you to look at this so that you will know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. I and the Father, we are one. Again, he's repeating the same thing that he said in John 10, 30. Repeating in another way. I and the Father are one. The Father is in me and I am in the Father. And so this fact, according to Jesus, this oneness of Jesus and the Father is really important for us to know that the Father gives affirmation of His pleasure with His Son. So Jesus did these things, the works of the Father, and they point to Him. And so Christ is telling them, 
You've got to believe this. In our world today, big movement, naturalists who deny the supernatural and mock that we believe that these miracles are true and, and that the scripture has been, is inerrant, it is perfect, it is true, it's without error, and it's come to us and they mock us of what we believe and the testimony of the scripture in regard to miracles. Why do they mock? Why do they mock? Because if you affirm that, what has to happen? You've got you to really consider it. If Jesus did all these things, and all these things are true, and they are true, then you've got to be accountable to the reality that it's the truth. So people today just like, no, I'll just hide my head in the sand, or I'll just deny it, or I'll just mock it, or I'll just say this, or I'll say that, or I'll claim this. But if you affirm that all of this is true, it means that He is Lord, and He is, and they just refuse to acknowledge this reality. Now, I just want to touch on this for a moment before we begin to talk about John the Baptist. I don't know what happened I wasn't in the temple that day, and God's never allowed me to go back and give me a video to see it. But I want you to notice the language has changed. Look at 39. And again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. My question is, where are the rocks? Where are the rocks? I don't know if it's a big spiritual point, but it's just interesting A few minutes earlier, they've got rocks ready to throw them, and now they're not going to throw them, and now they're just trying to figure out how to arrest Jesus. But again, they're trying to get rid of him and get him out of the way. Okay, we're going to stop there for a moment, and I'm going to transition us. That's it. He's not going to say anything else to them. It's his last words. He's going to leave the temple, and we're going to read next. He's going to go on the east side of the Jordan River, and he's going to go to where John the Baptist started his baptism ministry. He's going to go, and he will stay there, and we'll see next week that he will stay there until Lazarus gets sick, and they they will know where he is, and they will send people from Bethany with news that Lazarus is near death, and Jesus needs to hurry up and come because he needs to do another miracle to keep Lazarus from dying and so Jesus is going to go there now I I want us to feel the weight of this I want us to feel the weight of this he walks away now from proclaiming to the religious leaders who he is they have rejected over and over and over it's Romans 1 God will God will turn us over to what we want he will. He will turn you over to what you want. And he'll go, that what you want? You don't want me? You want to mock me? You want to live? You want to live that way? I will let you do that. I'll turn you over to your sin. And this is what he does with the religious leaders. He turns them over to their mockery, their rejection, and he walks away and he will not talk to them, but he will talk to the people. His last week in, at the Passover in the temple He will teach the people morning and afternoon. He will proclaim a lot, but he will not do anything with the religious leaders. So let's talk about what happens when he gets over to the other side of the Jordan 
So let's read 40 through 42. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign. John the Baptist, not John the Apostle. John the Baptist did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. So the end, in a sense, of Jesus' public ministry before the religious leaders is over with, and now he heads over and people find out that Jesus is there, and people come and they want to talk with Jesus. And so he's left Jerusalem, and he's gone to the place where John began his baptism ministry. It's interesting that Jesus ends his, note this, he ends his public ministry residing where John began his public ministry. Fascinating, I think. Very interesting. I think in this personal opinion, in some ways we'll see here in a moment, and I think in honor of, of the incredible man that John the Baptist was, that Jesus went to that place where the move of God opening up the pathway, began to take place for the coming of the Messiah. And I say that, I think you'll see here in a moment why I say that. So he goes and he spends the next three months or so over there before he comes back to Bethany, uh, we'll see next week. So we are probably one and a half to two years removed from John the Baptist's beheading. His influence and ministry and teaching and proclamation of Jesus is still present in the people's minds. And yet the people, interestingly, I think by great testimony to John, were able to differentiate and not be confused about John the Baptist and Jesus. And and the reason is, as John constantly said, I am not he, I'm not he, I'm not he, I'm not he, that's he. That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so here's John the Baptist, though dead, is going to get a last word at the end of John chapter 10 on the nature of Jesus as the Savior. And I love this. I love this. You may not be as excited about this as I am, but I hope you will be. Listen to this. John the Baptist so lived a life to not draw attention to himself, but to point to Jesus, that his testimony is being talked about again this morning on May the 2nd, 2021. And I love this reality that there are those who lived such Christ-centered lives throughout history that though they've been dead 500 years or 700 years or 1,500 years ago, their lives still speak this testimony. My life is not about me. My life is about Jesus. And John's life was that way. And so as Jesus goes to where John began, Jesus ends his public ministry, where John began began his public ministry, it is in this place where the people who had been so, who had learned so much from John about Jesus, give this great affirmation about John, everything John ever said about Jesus. What did they say? Every bit of it came true. Everything John said was true about Jesus. What a testimony that could be said about our lives. Everything that we say and sing and do is this great testimony to who Jesus is. So let me show you how John chapter 10 ends and as he gets there. And the first thing I want us to see is just the approachableness of Jesus. 
Verse 41, the first part says, And many came to him. Though the days were ticking away in regard to the culmination of Christ's ultimate purpose of coming to die on the cross, Jesus never gets to a place where he thrusts, notice this, thrusts people away from him. He didn't go over there and go, Yo, man, it's pretty over here. I'm going to sunbathe for a couple of months. The cross is coming. I'm going to swim each day. I'm going to hang out with my friends and just kind of take it easy because the days ahead are going to be incredibly stressful. You know what he did? He got over there. People heard that he was there. They came from everywhere. And he ministered to them. And it says twice there that they believed. Many came to him and they believed. So he's approachable. Don't miss that reality. Jesus is approachable. He calls us to him. Secondly, we learn that the people there analyzed John rightly and and analyzed Jesus rightly. They understood the difference between the two. They understood that John was a great prophet, but he was not the Messiah. He was not even John the Apostle. The apostles were able to do miracles. Remember, Jesus sent them out two by two. And then later he sent 72 of them out. And they went out and they healed the sick, cast out demons, did miracles. John the Baptist never did a miracle. And so the people say that, said John, he did no sign. And yet everything that John ever had to say in pointing to Jesus, every aspect of that became completely true. Now John is not diminished in their eyes at all. He's just seen in the right place. And I think it's always important. It's always important in our lives and faith that we can have our favorite preachers, favorite bloggers, favorite blah, 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 whatever it is. But they must be greatly diminished in light of Jesus. We can learn a lot from godly men and women who love Jesus but they never rise to any place close to the Son of God. And the people embraced what John told them about Jesus. And I think that's a mark of great teachers of the Bible. That they're not known for drawing attention to themselves. They are marked by, I just want to tell you today about Jesus. And next week I want to tell you about Jesus. And three months from now, I want to tell you about Jesus. And ten years from now, I want to tell you about Jesus. John lost his ministry, by the way, because Jesus' ministry grew so popular. And as his disciples were upset about that, and they came to him one day and said, Hey, teacher, everybody's going to the Jesus guy. And John says, You know what? That's okay. That's okay. I came for a short time and for a short purpose, and this is good. And then John says in John 3.33, you remember? I think it's 3.33. He must increase, and I have to decrease. See, he was perfectly content with the reality in who he was. Here's the third thing that happens at the end of John 10. There's an affirmation of the teaching ministry of John the Baptist. But everything that John said about this man, the people said, was true. They understood the Christ-centeredness of John's teaching. 
And again, I think that is a hallmark. If you're a teacher, if you teach the kids, you teach the youth, you're an elder, you feel a calling to women's ministry, preaching, whatever the case may be, to be a missionary, the hallmark of a minister is that all that they say about Jesus is true. That's the hallmark. In John the Baptist, the people affirm that reality about John. Everything John said about this man was true. We are to speak accurately about Jesus. We are to not embrace false teaching, subtle teaching. We embrace the written revelation of God in Scripture. So John knew who he was. He knew the true Jesus, and he spoke of Jesus accurately in every way. We're going to finish with one last thing. I want you to go back to verse 35, and I want to talk about the the chain for a second. And I want to look at those five words there, and the scripture that Jesus says there cannot be broken. Here's the last testimony that Jesus speaks about affirming that he is God, is that the scripture cannot be broken. The inerrant scriptures affirm that Jesus is God. So what does this mean that they cannot be broken? This word broken is not like our broken where we break coffee cups and plates and other things of that nature. This Greek word means this. It means to never be dissolved, never be dismissed, not be removed or eliminated. So listen to what Jesus says. And the scripture cannot be dissolved. And the Scripture cannot be dismissed. And the Scripture cannot be removed. And the, or the Scripture cannot be eliminated. The meaning for us is this. Is that the sacred Scripture cannot be dissolved or changed of its meaning. One cannot loosen it or dismiss the Scripture and its meaning. It's an original tent and context. The Scripture cannot be broken. So I brought a chain today to illustrate this. The scripture from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of Revelation chapter 22, it is not to be broken. Jesus affirms the reality in Psalm chapter 82 verse 6 that even in something we might read over and not notice, that word had evidence to point to the glory of Christ. Psalm 82 verse 6 did. Every link in the chain of the words are to remain and they are to lead us to see the revelation of the glory of Christ, of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Spirit. And Christ's whole argument with them is from a phrase that most would skip over in Psalm 82. But in these words, Jesus says this, All the words of God matter, for they have been breathed out by Him. I also love this reality because in today's world, people in my profession, my calling, like to wow everybody. You've learned that I can't wow. I'm not that impressive. I didn't hear any amens about that. You know what I love about this? It just goes at the heart of what we see in American Christianity in pulpits. Jesus uses a non-wowing verse to show the significance that every word in Scripture matters. They all matter. Every one of them. 
So let me close with this. Jesus, I think, above everybody else who's ever lived, held the Scriptures in the highest regard. He poured His life into teaching them, proclaiming them. So I believe nobody had a more elevated view of the Scripture than Jesus. Therefore, let me give you an application point for today. When we look at our life and we look at the Scripture, we never say, to the perfect written test that cannot be broken, cannot be dismissed, cannot be dissolved. We never say to that, it needs to adjust to our lives. No, we need to adjust to its testimony. That's the way it works. And we find more freedom when we do that. By the way, he's not going to adjust to anybody's life. Foolish thinking, foolish attempt, he's not. He's not going to meet us halfway on that. But He's going to call us to come all the way to the truth. And when we find the truth, you will know the truth. And the truth will what? Set you free. Every word matters. Jesus often appealed to Scripture as the final infallible authority. He defeated Satan in the temptations in the wilderness by what? Quoting Scripture. He often cited Scripture as the basis for his actions. That's in all four Gospels he speaks about. Here's why I'm doing this. Jesus said the Scriptures testify about him. John chapter 5, 39. John chapter 5, verse 46. Luke 24, 40, uh, 25 and 26. And Luke 24, 44 through 47. And Jesus spent the whole day, the whole afternoon and the whole night, on the day of the resurrection doing what? talking to the apostles and two guys on the road to Emmaus, explaining to them everything in the Old Testament that there's a cannot be dismissed that it spoke about him. So the beauty of this is incredible. That he lovingly told them one last time, these religious leaders, how they can truly know that he is the Son of God, the Messiah who's come, and they reject it. And they will reject him and they will want to kill him and they will... Uh, organize and things as the Father is working things. The Father was in charge of all of this anyway, by the way. The heading to the cross, the Father was in charge of. Just read Peter's Acts 2 Pentecost sermon. This was the plan of the Father for the Son to come and die. And are we not glad? Are we not so thankful that Jesus came to do that? So these things, again, this is, I don't know how the sermon hit you today and it may not have been a wow sermon. That's okay. They don't have to be wow things. But I'll just tell you this. This is the last testament of Jesus face to face with these men. And so these are really important words to consider as he pleads with them one more time to consider who he is. And what you and I need more than anything else today is to say to him, I need more of you. I want more of you. If all of this is true and that the link cannot be broken, dismissed, dissolved, done away with, then I've got to know Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation chapter 22. I can't dismiss any of it. I've got to embrace it. It's got to be a part of my life. I've I've got to fill my life and fill my mind with this truth. And so, Jesus, I need more of you in every bit and every aspect of my life. Let's pray.